0: Continuing in our gospel of Luke, and uh, I don't know about you, but this has been kind of a rough slog. I've said that a couple of times already, but this uh, chapters 11 through 19, as Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, there's a part of me over the last few weeks that has just said, Come on, just get to Jerusalem already um, so that we can get to the resurrection and. Um, And yet, this is clearly a really significant part. I mean, Luke understood as he was uh, writing out and telling this part of the story, the absolute critical nature um, that we as disciples understand exactly what it means to follow Jesus. And so we see that again here this morning. And we are now, uh, we've reached the end of the 14th chapter. Next week, we'll begin the 15th chapter, which has some very memorable parables that many of us uh, will know well. But today we are looking uh, at chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. So I invite you to hear these words. Luke writes this, Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation And is not able to finish. All who see it will begin to ridicule him. Saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king. Will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000. To oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot Then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is useful neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. They throw it away. And if you have ears to hear, than here. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we gather this morning and once again we hear your voice. Once again, Lord, we pray that this morning that you would open up our ears and our hearts to you when we begin to feel defensive or afraid we pray O God that your words would lower those walls help us hear what it means to follow you And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So as Jesus continues toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, toward his death, the crowds continue to swell. And by this point, Jesus must be wondering how in the world it is that people keep following him knowing as he knows exactly where it is that he is headed. Perhaps he was even baffled by this. It's not of course that Jesus doesn't want people to follow him, but what we understand about Jesus is that he wants them to understand exactly what it means to follow him. No bait and switch. He wants to be as transparent as is possible. You see, in our day and age, typically when there is a larger crowd, we begin to think that whatever it is, it must be. There must be some truth to it. It must be really good. And, and we don't oftentimes perhaps, you know, question it as much. And yet clearly what is happening here is that Jesus, in many ways, is beginning to thin out the crowd, Scott Hosey says that throughout the Gospels, it is abundantly clear that Jesus did not regard large crowds as necessarily a good sign. You see, large crowds, of course, uh, they can be a bit of a danger. And that includes, and especially perhaps it includes us in the church. Because one of the things, just think about this, that happens the larger the crowd, right? If they're on a level uh, playing field and the crowd is that the stage then, and the star, he or she, must of course, be elevated. And the larger the crowd, the more physically that person must be elevated so that he or she can be seen well. And I continued, I would would conjecture that the larger, the higher up they get physically, there is great likelihood that we will be tempted that the higher up that they also begin to get emotionally in our minds, the more that we begin to esteem them by their simply being higher and higher, the more we begin to put them on a pedestal. I was uh, hearing uh, some friends the other day talk about, um, this was a little while back, about a, a conference that was going on at a large church where they live and How when the the, the lead pastor came in, there was this great uproarious applause, almost like they were at a Taylor Swift concert. And it seems to me that whenever you begin to get that sense, especially in the church, that we should begin to test our hearts. Everyone should begin to test their hearts in order to make sure that they are not beginning to distort who that person is. One of the dangers, it seems to me, that perhaps we don't always think about when it comes to a crowd is the fact that this adoration can oftentimes become a distraction from our participation. Danish uh, philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he says this, he says that whenever we begin to admire and blubber in the presence of someone we view as remarkable that we oftentimes then become spectators and connoisseurs who conveniently avoid living lives ourselves. This doesn't mean, of course, that every time you're in a large crowd of people who are there, maybe even in a church or whatnot, it doesn't mean that, that necessarily uh, that you won't participate. But it does mean that the larger the crowd is, the more tempted we begin to be to just simply admire, to just simply uh, go on and on about that person. And in some ways, what happens is that we become spiritual sloths, cheering on the spiritual cheetah. And thinking that by doing so, it means that we will actually be changed or transformed. But what Jesus understands is that in our faith and in our journey, nothing is gained by our simply applauding spiritual cheetahs in our midst. That all of us are called to actively participate in this journey. And as Jesus looked out at the crowd, it seems to me that perhaps he began to realize that the crowds had fooled themselves into believing that nothing was expected of them, that nothing was demanded of them. And so he quickly began to disavail them of this facade. And so he begins to tell them if you want to follow me, you have got to hate your mother and your father and your wife and your brother, and your sister. That you have to carry your cross. If you want to follow me, before doing so, you should consider this. What is the actual cost of this? Before you build a tower, you would be wise to figure out how much is it going to cost. Otherwise, you'll be ridiculed. Before you go off to war, if you're a king, you better count the cost. Do you have enough soldiers? You need to sell everything that You have. Can't you imagine that massive, that burgeoning crowd all of a sudden beginning to slowly, much like a sloth, just kind of back away. Jesus wanted to be sure that they understood. Jesus, through Luke, wants to be sure that we understand exactly what it costs. If we are going to follow him. Jesus goes for the jugular, it seems to me, in this particular passage. There are few things as offensive as what Jesus says to the crowds on that day. We actually, I'm not sure why, uh, I didn't look to see why. We actually went through this particular passage a couple of years ago and so I don't want to be overly redundant. And yet when something is so strong and stark, it seems to me that we've got to address it again. When we talked about this a couple of years ago, we, we mentioned the fact that one of the things that this passage is clearly saying is that even the best of things, a country, our identity, our successes, our families... Even the best of things, if they become ultimate in our lives, if we begin to idolize them, then those things can easily become broken and sinful in our lives. And so I want to continue to just think through this a little bit more Today, What exactly does this mean? What does this entail? One of the things that we've got to be mindful of is the fact that, you know, we can't just be like, well, you know, back in their time, from what we hear, they didn't really like their families that much. So this would have been kind of easy, you know? I mean, they're like, oh, thank God, I don't have to love my parent anymore. Man, this brother or sister has been bothering me for a long time, so so this is a good thing. No, as Tim Keller makes very clear, as most of us, I think, probably know, back then the family was absolutely critical. It was essential. It was easy, quite frankly, for them to become somewhat idolatrous. So it would have seemed just as scandalous to them as it does to us today. And one of the things, of course, let's just take this on very face value. One of the things this means is that, yeah, there may be times... When there is a separation, because of following Jesus, when there is a separation, that it could be almost like a hatred, if you will, when you begin to follow Jesus. Now, we don't necessarily get that as much, perhaps, in this country. We oftentimes hear stories like this in other countries where as soon as someone begins to follow Jesus, there is a disowning, if you will, a parting of family, right? And and, and although even this this week I heard about somebody here locally for whom this this occurred once they began to follow Jesus— So there are times perhaps when we experience that in a very literal way, but there are also times perhaps when it happens in a more figurative way. I've seen this uh, several times where there is someone who begins to follow Jesus and they're really following Jesus and it feels a little bit too radical for the family. Maybe they were raised in church, but what they served was a very polite Jesus. Uh, You know, uh, you you would go, but it was all kind of in good manners. This is simply what you did. And as soon as uh, all of a sudden this person who's really kind of more radically following Jesus, it becomes a bit odd. It begins to feel strange. They're like, okay, God is great and all, but you don't need to take God that seriously. And so there are times, of course, when that begins to be distance the distance between a person following Jesus and his or her particular family. But there are also times, it seems to me, when we perhaps who are following Jesus may need to in even greater ways begin to turn our backs, at least on the worldview ...that our family has tried to give us as we were growing up. Sometimes there are dreams that parents may have for us, hopes for us for exactly what we should do. This is who you should be when you grow up. This is what we want you to be. This is your identity. This is your job. This is what you should do. And when we begin to feel God's pull in a different direction, it may not make sense to them. And we may be in grave danger of actually disappointing our parents. And yet, of course, this is exactly perhaps what we are called to do. Family expectations can oftentimes be incredibly burdensome. But one of the other things that I also know is that it is oftentimes the words of parents or family that we hear when we are children that actually distort who we are and who God says that we are, that we might then find necessary to hate I am oftentimes amazed, both in others' lives and my own, how words that we might have heard from our family, when we were young, the staying power of those words. So perhaps when you were younger, maybe it was said to you that you weren't quite as smart as maybe a brother or sister, not quite as nice as a brother or sister maybe you you didn't quite stack up you weren't quite as successful and they let you know that maybe you needed to trim down a little bit maybe you needed to do a little bit better at your school maybe this or that and those kinds of words and what's frustrating to me of course if I'm so honest is there are times when I hear myself saying these same kinds of words to my own kids And that at some point as we become adults and as we grow in understanding, no, 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 this is who Jesus says. Jesus says that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. This is who I am, that we need to begin to live into that understanding and, yes, begin to hate the words that once placed us in a particular side that said, no, 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 that is not who I am. This is who God says I am. Now, let's be honest, it also can easily happen in the other direction. I've seen families where a particular child was told in some way that the success of their family lays on them. At other times, there's been this kind of burden that you're the one who's going to hold this family together, whether said or unsaid, financially or emotionally or even spiritually. You're the one, you're going to hold this family together. Or the sense, right, I've heard this at times, Quite frankly, I heard it myself. You're the golden child, And at first, when we hear that as kids, we love that. Who doesn't want to be the golden child? Who doesn't want to be the one, hey, everything depends on me. This is great. And yet those words can easily become shackles to us. And as you grow in your faith with Jesus, there are some things that you begin to learn. One of those is you cannot hold the family together. Only God can hold a family together. Ultimately, you are not God. Therefore, you cannot do that. And also then as we talked about just a couple of weeks ago what you begin to see is we begin to focus on humility you know what you're not a golden child it's okay to be a bronze child It's okay to be ordinary And so there are these things that as we begin to follow Jesus, as we begin to love Jesus and feel the love of Jesus, as we grow in our discipleship, there are, some of these, there are some of these shackles, some of these words, some of these thoughts that, yes, we will need to begin to turn our backs to our families if we long to follow Jesus first and foremost. Now, it's also been pointed out That this word hate, that we understand as hate, our own concept of hate, is actually a little bit different, or would have been certainly in the Jewish world in that time. That it's not so much perhaps the way that we understand it, but it does mean a lesser love. In other words, that what Jesus is telling them is that if you want to follow me, here's what's going to happen. You have to love me first and foremost. Above every other love, all of these other loves must begin to come underneath. This is what Augustine talks about. He talks about the ordering and the reordering of our loves. That as you grow in your relationship with Jesus, what begins to happen is that as that begins to grow, right? These other loves begin to kind of fall down in order. They descend from our first and foremost, from our ultimate love, which is the love of Jesus. Now, here's what I think is important to remember when it comes to this, because we, uh, we may not always think about it like this. What this means is that if what we want, if we want to follow Jesus and we believe that that means that our love for him has to be higher than others, the way that we do that is not by suppressing our other loves, right? It's not by saying, you know, going around to your family and saying, hey, I got to tell you by next Thanksgiving, I hope I love you all a lot less than I love you right now. Okay, this is not kind of how it happens. Rather, what happens is your love of Jesus actually must begin to grow. Now, that's kind of a weird thing for us because, by and large, we don't oftentimes think about the fact that we have some control over how our love can grow. This is why I love this book. I brought it up before, You Are What You Love. I think that's the name of it by James K.A. Smith. I go over it every several months or so. I just kind of go through it again because I think it is so powerful. And if you, uh, if you haven't read it, and if you like to read, I would encourage it. I think it's this great. It's a really great book. And one of the things it just talks about is the, that, that, that love comes from imitation. It comes from our habits, right? And the story I've told before was the story of, uh, of my love for football, right? I never really thought about it, but You know, I loved NFL. This is appropriate on kickoff Sunday. I loved NFL, right? But then I went to Scotland remember and and nobody I lived there and nobody there was no ESPN there and uh, they didn't care about uh, uh, you know American football as they called it and and I didn't have people to talk to about it and and slowly but surely my love for football kind of began to to fade away I hadn't even noticed the, the, the reality that the reason why my love was so high for football was because I was constantly surrounded by by Sports Center and by uh, you know by fantasy football and by other people who loved uh, football so we were always talking about it i didn't even notice the fact that that's why my love was elevated it just felt like no this is just natural right you think about it you you even see this with i was thinking about this with the the 40th anniversary maybe you've seen sally bias has been putting things up on facebook about over the last 40 years and so we've seen those things it's been great but of course one of the things you really notice is is what they're wearing Right? And so the fact that, you know, you see these men and they've got these shorts and they're like all the way up here. And you're like, well, that feels inappropriate. And and, and sometimes it was. And and I realize that some of these things are coming back and that's fine. But, you know, uh, you know, and you think, I just don't, I don't think that looks good. Or the feathered hair. Why did we think feathered hair was a good look? Now, why is that? changed, right? I mean, that that at some point in the 80s and whatnot, that felt really good. I love this. But then slowly but surely, our culture and and fashionistas and the media and the people we're with, all of a sudden, it begins to kind of look differently. And all of a sudden, you know, now, now I love this look. I was thinking about this several years ago. I saw a guy and he had, I'm not even going to say what it is, a particular fashion trend that he was, uh, he was on the cutting edge of apparently. And, and I looked at him and I just, I mean, I just rolled my eyes. And I said to Meg, can you believe it? Can you believe he would wear something like that? Oh, it's embarrassing. And over the last several months, I found myself wanting to do the same thing. <laughs> now, why is that? I didn't like, I, thought, I thought it was, I hated that, right? But all of a sudden I'm like, man, that's not a bad look. Why does that happen, right? Because it's cultivated, oftentimes unconsciously or subconsciously. This becomes just to be cultivated. Our loves can be cultivated by habits, by those people that we surround ourselves with. This is why we talk about some of these spiritual disciplines, right? This is why we we talk about silence and and, and Sabbath and meditating on Scripture. It's why we want to focus on Jesus as we look through the gospel of Luke it's why we talk about the critical component of community when it comes to your faith because as you begin to engage in those things what happens is your love begins to grow and that you see is when then your love of everything else it may look like it's getting lower it's still there you still can love these folks and yet your love of God is growing and growing But you see, what happens is is as that begins to occur, as this begins to love, as your love begins to grow, your desires here, some of them begin to change. And quite frankly, in our day and age, it begins to look very strange. What does this result in? It looks very different. I I, I like uh, what David Jacobson says. He says that when you're looking at this passage, what you begin to realize is that discipleship cannot just be one more hobby or extracurricular activity. But I want to tell you that when you begin to make following Jesus less a hobby and more a whole new way of life, it can begin to look and feel very, very strange. So let's stay with this. Let's see, what does this look like? As we kind of grow in our love of Jesus, what might this look like There's a couple things I want to talk about, all of them with family, really. One of those things is that all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, slowly, what you begin to see is that actually in Scripture, it seems that what Jesus is saying is that your church family is actually your first family. Which flies in the face of our culture and especially in a community like ours, where, of course, our first family is our nuclear family. Andy Crouch, in his book TechWise Family, he's pretty blunt. This is exactly how he puts it. He says it like this. He says, as a Christian, I actually don't believe the biological family is the main place. We are meant to be known and loved in a way that leads to wisdom and courage. Jesus, after all, said some pretty harsh things about ordinary biological family. The first family for everyone who wants wisdom and courage in the way of Jesus is the church the community of disciples who are looking to Jesus to reshape their understanding and their character. Now let's be honest, this feels a little bit weird. I mean, we tend to just highlight so much our nuclear families, and it makes pastors like me nervous as well, because we realize that if the church is actually supposed to be that, then we likely need a more robust church community. That it certainly means more than just, this is what we want to do on Sunday mornings, because clearly you cannot be shaped simply on a Sunday morning. If this is really going to be our first family, it takes much more than that, right? It's part of the reason, right? And this is not everything, but it's a part of the reason why we have these home groups, and why we want to cultivate that because we believe that we need to lean into that more you have to in some way live your life with brothers and sisters in christ if we want that to be elevated and to begin to become our first family here's one of the things though there's 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 two things i think about this that are actually really helpful first is this it it helps us to remember the critical importance of singles of single people you see we don't oftentimes say it but but the truth is that we don't encourage single people nearly as much as we should paul's pretty clear about the importance of single people in fact you know this is something we rarely talk about paul says you should do your best to be single Why? Well, because then, you know, you can work towards the ultimate. Remember, the ultimate is not to get married and to have kids. The ultimate is always pointing to God. So we should begin to cultivate that. But what happens in in churches, even ours, is that especially if you're younger and you're single, right, we become see harmony, right? We we begin to say, oh, I think I know you should, we should hook you up with this person. We should connect you with that person. And, And I'm not suggesting that that's, you know, we should never try and match make, but I am certainly suggesting That being single is actually a gift. And we would be wise to not think that every single person, what they really need is to try and quickly find somebody else. I will be here to tell you, the church, this church, could not survive without single people who do a remarkable amount of work to help further our kingdom. The kingdom of God. Of course, the second thing that someone has pointed out is this, for those of us who do have a spouse or kids, or it also is this great reminder that we don't have to do everything. You see, there's also a tremendous amount of pressure for us to feel like. I don't know if you feel like this, I do as a parent, that we have to, we it is all up to us to make sure that that our kids, you know, are, are honed and that they become healthy people, that they become good followers of Jesus, and that they, you know, have friends, all these things. You know, we feel this immense pressure, and one of the gifts is this: I don't have to feel nearly as much pressure because some of this is up to you. Don't fail me. And so there is this kind of release of this this burden that says, I've got to do everything, or Megan has to do everything, right? There's this great gift in this. Alexander Schmemann, who's this Orthodox theologian, and I love his name, uh, he says this. He says, it is not the lack of respect for the family, but the idolization of the family that breaks the family so easily, making divorce its almost shadow you see if your end goal if your end goal is marriage or is the nuclear family then you will continually be in want there will be so much pressure for them to meet every single one of your needs that that is why it becomes the shadow of divorce and brokenness Now, you may know this. Hopefully you do. This is a part of the reason why we do baptisms in a distinct way. When we do baptisms, remember, we do it almost always, only in almost kind of emergency situations do we always do baptisms in community right? We don't want to do this privately. Why? Because we believe that this is a part of what we're doing as a community, that this child is a part of the community, right? So you know, right? I stand up here and I, I ask the, uh, the, the, the two parents a question, right? We're going to have one next week. So, so you can just, I'm preparing you so that you can remember this. I stand right here. This is over here. I ask the parents two questions, right? And then the elder comes up and the elder asks you all a question, right? And you all answer that question. And it's a covenant that you are making with the children. And then I have them go out there so that, so that you all can welcome them as your child. And every time uh, before baptism, at some point uh, leading up to it, I meet with the parents and I have what I think is kind of an, it's kind of an awkward conversation at times. Now, I, I kind of nice it up. but um, Because I, I remind them, look, you know, we're, we're making this vow. Okay? Some of you, I've been in there with you. I, you know, we're making this vow. The, 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 the community is making the vow. But in order for us to fulfill that vow, it means that we actually have to be able to see the child. It's kind of like if you're a, you know, if you're a bride and groom and, 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 and you, you make these vows and then the groom leaves town forever. The bride can't actually fulfill those vows. And so, what I, I don't ever say this, but it's what I'm feeling like. I'm asking kind of, please don't make us a liar. Because we really want to be able to raise this child, and it always feels kind of weird because it 's countercultural because if I almost always feel like i 'm overstepping my bounds i 'm not the parent i 'm just a pastor, and yet if we 're being baptized in this particular place and in this space, we are making a vow that we are going to love and care for this children for these children and, you know I said this a few years ago um, I I've oftentimes felt guilty or afraid to, to kind of mention the fact that, especially as kids get older, the importance that, that activities don't always take priority over being in worship. And certainly I don't want to become, you know, fundamentalist about this and think, oh, well, you know, you can never do anything on a Sunday morning. But, but I, I noticed that I was always trying to couch this and be very gentle about it and, you know, say, well, you know, it might be nice if once every three or four months they come in here on a Sunday morning. And... But, but then I remembered. maybe you remember I'm saying, I, I remember, I said, wait, why am I, why am I so scared to say this? Because you know who's not scared to say something to your children? Coaches. And musical directors, band directors, whomever else it may be. No, I hardly, you don't ever see them pussyfooting around this, right? It's always just like, well, you know, if you don't do that, you're not making the team. If you don't come, you're not gonna start. And I began to take kind of umbrage to that because I'm like, well, these aren't, these aren't your kids, these are our kids. Yeah, these are our kids, so we take ownership. But it feels weird. It's countercultural, and yet this is exactly, I think, what Jesus is calling us to in this. Or what about marriage? You see, again, marriage is not the ultimate. You see, we don't believe in the Christian church that the reason that you become married to someone is because you finally found the love of your life. Or because this is the person, you know, that you want to spend the rest of your life with. Or this is the person who's going to meet your every need. We're we're smart enough to realize that that's not the case. You see, ultimately, marriage is not even about the bride and the groom. It is about how are these people shaping, how is one another shaping one another so that they then can be more Christ-like, so that they then can begin to make a difference in the kingdom of God, that that is always the ultimate when it comes to marriage. Again, Alexander Schmemann, the Orthodox theologian, has these very blunt words, a marriage which does not constantly crucify, Its own selfishness and self sufficiency, which does not die to itself that it may point beyond itself, is not a Christian marriage. See, when I do weddings, almost every time when I do a wedding sermon, I talk about the fact that the great thing about a bride and a groom is that they will help to teach you how to be more gentle, more patient, have more self control. And then at the very end of the weddings that I do, I always say this prayer for the couple and for the community. And here's what that prayer is. Help us all, O oh God, to do your will in each of our homes and lives. Enrich us with your grace so that supporting one another, we may serve those in need and hasten the coming of peace, love, and justice on Earth. you see that this is not so you know help us all to do your will you know so that we can just keep falling madly in love with each other which is fine it's not like you know christians hate the fact that people love each other but there's always a sense that it is about so much more and we must always be mindful of that Because our culture is going to constantly be coming at us and saying, no, ultimately, all that matters is just you two, or all that matters is your nuclear family. And yet what we see is Jesus saying, oh, no, 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 you must broaden your understanding. I I see this now actually even with weddings. Now, I'm going to be real careful here because I've done quite a few weddings around here. I want you to know that every single one of them has been perfect. But from what I hear, in many ways, the arch nemeses I think of pastors are wedding photographers. Now, truth be told, if you're a wedding photographer, please don't take offense. Oftentimes, wedding photographers are puppets. There's a puppeteer above them. It might be a bride, it might be a groom, it might be the parents. It doesn't matter. I'm just saying that oftentimes it's not just them. But there is this tremendous pressure, almost as if the marriage hinges upon just the right photo. And so there is this great pressure. I was doing a, a wedding several weeks ago. It was not, there were no ZPCers involved. So I feel free to say this. And as I, right, right, just, just a few minutes before I went to kind of do the ceremony, uh, uh, the photographer came up to me and he said, you know, as soon as, uh, so I just want to make sure that you're planning that as soon as you say, you know, you may kiss the bride, that you're going to kind of move out of the way so I can get just the right shot. I said, no, I had not been planning on that actually. It becomes this time of great friction. I'm not against photos. And I get that sometimes maybe I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. It's just a wedding. But my concern is that in Christian weddings even, sometimes the pastor, the vows, the rings, the message have just become props for fairy tale dreams the greatest memento of the big day of the wedding is not the perfect wedding photo or the perfect wedding cake it is a life long journey with somebody else Where by the end of that journey, you two look so much more like Jesus and have done remarkable things to further peace, love, and justice towards God's kingdom. There is no greater memento to a wedding day than a life well lived and a life where the couple has furthered God's kingdom. You see, as Jesus keeps getting closer to Jerusalem and as we keep getting closer to Jesus, he is calling those of us who are sisters and brothers in Christ to look at Jesus not just as a hobby, but as a whole new way of living. A part of carrying this cross is that we will not see Jesus simply as some add-on or an additive to make our lives just a little bit better. But that we, as our love for Jesus continues to grow, that everything else and how we see others and how we live with others and how we experience others, that all of that will begin to change. So that the community around us we'll be able to see with an abundant amount of clarity that we are living with a different kind of love. And though it may seem strange to them at first, may they slowly but surely begin to understand that Jesus can be so much more than just a hobby, that he promises new life for God's glory and for God's glory alone amen Amen. let us pray God you are a holy God you long for us to follow you But you want to be abundantly clear, Lord, what it looks like to do so. I pray, Lord, wherever each of us finds ourselves today, at whatever part of this journey, that you would help us just simply take one more step, as small as it may be, to grow in our love for you, to grow in what it means to be about your coming kingdom. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.